Rock and roll. It's your daily dose of all things Gamecocks on the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. Here's J.C. Sherbert. Inside the Gamecocks podcast. Happy April 14th, everyone. J.C. Sherbert here with you. would say it was the day before tax day, but the government gave a 30-day extension this year, so that will be in May 15th for most people. Uh, not everybody, but uh, happy April 14th. Glad to be with you. Uh, lots to get to today, as always, here on the Inside the Gamecast podcast. Got to start it right off. Uh, want to talk a little bit about the quarterback situation with football. Um, and I've been talking about this and, and hinting around about it and talking to sources and getting some feedback and intel and then, you know, kind of going off some, some gut feeling type of stuff as well. And uh, Luke Doty has had a really good spring. Um, and so those of you that were concerned about the quarterback situation, this will maybe help you not be as concerned uh, because I think the other two guys in the mix, three guys in the mix, if you can't walk on Connor Jordan, have done some nice things as well. So it hasn't been just a layup kind of deal. Uh, Jason Brown, who I think we thought would compete for the job, kind of got behind. So you don't know what's going to happen when he catches up. He's done some nice things, as has Colton Gauthier and uh, Connor Jordan, the walk-on that I mentioned earlier. Uh, but Luke Doty's really been something that uh, has honestly surprised some people, uh, especially in the passing department. Uh, he, he's a guy that certainly had a big rep coming in. You know, there, there's a reason that Luke Doty was ranked uh, where he was ranked coming out of high school uh, in the class of 2020. Uh, he was the number 86 overall prospect in the country, uh, number four dual threat quarterback in the country. Uh, out of Myrtle Beach, put up gaudy statistics. Uh, the question, you know, that I think people had after last year when he was sort of thrown to the fire uh, was in the passing department. And, uh, you know, I don't I don't think you'd look at Luke Doty and say he has a howitzer for an arm or anything like that, but I think he is accurate when he's on or was in high school. Uh, and I think last year a lot of his struggles were just, un, you know, hadn't played a whole lot. And when you have to go make reads on a defense, live action, uh, you know, that gets difficult. That, that's why quarterbacks get better in time. Uh, and that's why when you have a, a younger quarterback or a freshman with no experience, coaches tend to dumb down the offense a little bit. And I think some of that, too, was Mike Bobo saying, all right, you got one read, then take off uh, at times last year. Uh, I also think some of the skepticism – and, and it's the world we live in these days because I think everybody wants instant spark. And, you know, in, in this program, too, if you've been around a while, uh, everybody, you know, that's been around for a while, that's my age, remembers Steve Tannehill coming in uh, when a Gamecocks had a one and five record and leading them to a five and one or an 0 and five record, lead them to a five and one finish as a true freshman. Uh, closer to now, you remember 2016, the Gamecocks were sitting in two and four. Jake Bentley takes over as a true freshman, uh, finishes four and two, gets them to a bowl. Uh, Steven Garcia, as a redshirt freshman, comes in uh, up at Kentucky where the Gamecocks are struggling to get anything going, uh, comes in for Chris Smelly and ends up 
earning the start the next three weeks. Now he got back, went back to the bench later that year, but provided the team a spark in 08. Uh, you know, so, so you've seen it. You, you know, you've seen some freshman quarterbacks come in uh, and and do some nice things uh, o- over the years and, and provide a spark. Uh, you know, I, I always go Chris Smelly as a redshirt freshman in 07, took over for Blake Mitchell for a while in the Gamecocks won up until that Vanderbilt game. So uh, I think I think maybe with this fan base in particular, there's a little bit of a skewed expectation and, you know, the, maybe a now or never kind of feeling about the quarterbacks. Um, and I don't know that watching those two and a half games Doty was in last year that you'd say, well, it's a never. Um, he had the same issues with receivers that Colin Hill did. I mean, there weren't. Uh, I think Shaq came back for the last game, but, you know, he really had not a lot at all in terms of help. You know, he had Nick Muse, and that was about it. Uh, And, and, you know, if you look at the Missouri game, the second half of the Missouri game, he came in, and then the Georgia game, uh, I thought he played pretty pretty well for a true freshman, especially against that Georgia defense. Um, It looked pretty good. In fact, I had a a guy that's a Georgia fan that was – at that game that, that told me he thought that, you know, Doty had a bright future, you know, and I respect his opinion. But uh, the, the Kentucky game wasn't his best, and that was the last game of the year. Uh, you had a game where Kevin Harris runs for 210 yards. You lose 41-18. That's probably – you're probably not doing something right. There were some turnovers, all that. But but that was one game. And, and look, Luke Doty's not going to be perfect in every game this coming season. No quarterback is. Uh, and, and that's another problem around here. I think that everybody expects perfection out of the signal caller. And when things don't go right on offense, they tend to blame the quarterback, and, and that's fine. But, um, you know, I, I think that Kentucky game kind of stuck in some people's heads uh, and, and all that. And so, uh, you know, the bottom line is Luke Doty was a highly rated recruit for a reason. It doesn't always mean that it's going to work out when you're highly rated. Uh, it doesn't always mean that it's not going to work out when you're not, but there was some skill set there that was, you know, some people that know how to evaluate talent saw, and you expect that talent uh, to manifest itself as time moves forward. And, and so here's what I'm I'm here to tell you. So far, ten days before the spring game, Luke Doty's the front runner to be the quarterback, uh, and and he's improved. He's improved, and and from one staff to the next. Now he's got the a new offense to learn, just like everybody else. Um, but you know they they like the way he's played, and and they you know he's took the first snap uh, of spring practice simply because he had the most experience. But he's taken the first snap since then, uh, and and they like him. So I, I would say right now, and I don't know that Beamer is going to name a guy. Uh, I think you you kind of want to continue the competition through the off season, but right now you know you lose you, lose, you use the term leader in the clubhouse. Uh, it's Luke Doty, and I think that's a good thing because I I think here, here's the deal: there's still question marks at receiver. Um, you, you got some good tight ends, uh, a good offensive lineman, and and good running backs, and and I think that with what Doty brings to the table with his legs. And, and, you know, you're going to use that in a game. Uh, I think that can kind of help because it gives you one more option uh, on offense. You know, if, if you have a guy that's kind of a statue in the pocket that, that can't run 
you're basically either handing it off or throwing it. Uh, and there's no like, I mean, you maybe you could escape a couple of times and, and I, I don't know, you know, Colton Gauthier and, and uh, Jason Brown and Connor. Jo- I wouldn't call them statues, but they're not the runner type that Luke Doty is um, in scrambling, getting first downs, broken plays in the passing game. When you take off, uh, everybody remembers the Connor Shaw era. Uh, and like I said, in a previous podcast, I'm, you know, I've heard that comparison um, but uh, one of the great things Connor Shaw did was when a play broke down and nobody was open, he could take off running for eight or nine yards. And, you know, Steve's pretty to say that's very helpful. <laughs> you know, uh, And it is, it, it is for a quarterback. Um, and, and I think, you know, you think back to Savelle Newton and, and how he was able to navigate the offense in 06 for those games uh, when he really wasn't used to, knowing the plays and running Spurrier's offense, you know, one of the big things he could do is just run out uh, when something wasn't there or there was a breakdown or receiver runs the wrong route instead of a guy forcing it and it may be being a pick or, or something like that in the passing game, you got the legs, you got the wheels. And the way this offense is going to be designed, you know, there, there's going to be some opportunity there for that to happen. Uh, and so I, I think – you know, for those of you out there that have been clamoring for a quarterback that can run, uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with the success Connor Shaw had here, uh, here's your guy. And, um, you know, I, I think that uh, with with regards to the passing game, you know, they're really working that. Uh, I think if Doty were struggling in the passing game, they, they probably wouldn't, you know, be as high on him. Uh, and I'm talking really struggling. I'm not saying Doty's been perfect because nobody really is. Because <laughs> uh, I, I, I think they all realize, too, in the game these days, you have to be able to have some kind of passing game. Uh, and, and I think that the inconsistency at receiver uh, is a thing that, you know, sooner or later some guys are going to rise to the top of that group. And, and sooner or later – they're going to whittle it down. You have 13 scholarship guys, 18 overall. Uh, and just mathematics would tell you, you know, some of those guys should be able to be at least competent. Uh, and I think with the run game, quarterback run game, the tight ends, the offensive line, you know, you're, you're starting to talk about a pretty competent offense uh, if you can get things going. Do I think they'll be world beaters and average 550 yards a game against that schedule this year against the SEC defenses in Clemson and, you know, all the good defenses they'll play now. But I, I do think you could see them put some points on the board um, just because sustained drives and keep the defense off the field and all the things that good offenses need to do. Uh, and I think it's very, very intriguing uh, when you think about the fact Luke Doty's sort of taking the bull by the horns here uh, and, and looks like right now he's the favorite to win the job. He's a different guy than the other three uh, because of his legs. And and I think that if you have that element in your offense, like I said, Spurrier said it's very, very helpful to be repetitive there. Um, and, and keep in mind, too, you know, this 2020 recruiting class was probably Muschamp's best. It was the 19th-ranked class in the country. Uh, the top three players in that class were Jordan Birch, Marshawn Lloyd, and Luke Doty. So Luke Doty was third right there. Um, and uh, so, so look, that's good news for the Gamecocks, I think. Uh, obviously, with the arm talent Jason Brown has and the progress Colton Gauthier has made, 
I, I thought, you know, well, look, there's there's always a chance if if Doty just absolutely can't throw the football, uh, and, and you've got issues in that department, then um, you know it, it's it maybe one of the other guys w- w- would be the guy. But but I think here, you know, what we've seen is, you know, he, he's the passing hasn't been a problem. The passing's actually been pretty good. And and so and Marcus Satterfield, Carolina's offensive coordinator, said that, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I start to look at this 2020 class, and I'll, I'll seg, segue here. Um, you know, first and foremost, they're all still at South Carolina, with the exception of Micaiah Scott. Uh, and you start looking at this 2020 class, and I mean, <laughs> Birch and Lloyd are players they're going to count on. Huntley's in the mix at D tackle. Muhammad Kaba could be a starting linebacker. Eric Shaw's at tight end, probably needs to get a little bigger. There are players in front of him, but he's still going to be a special player. I, I, I think they could move him back to defense and he'd probably be fine, or maybe even to wide receiver. I don't know. Uh, Taka Hemingway is, is going to probably push for a starting job at D tackle. There's Rico Powers. Haven't heard much about Mike Wyman. Jaheim Bell uh, is a player that's played pretty well that could end up being kind of a Swiss Army night on offense. Quandre White is having a good spring back at running back now. He's an ultimate team player. Tyshawn Wanamaker got some reps at left tackle the other day. He's very promising. Jakari Caldwell's in the mix at receiver. Trey Jones, they absolutely love. Joey Hunter's been hurt, but he's going to be in the mix in the secondary. Jasta Turnentine could be the starting left tackle. Vershawn Lee's pushing for a starting job on the offensive line. Then you got Dominic Hill and Odell, O'Donnell Fortune in the secondary. Rashad Amos at running backs had some good moments. Gilbert Edmond uh, is a guy that's going to be a really good edge player down the road. Uh, and then you have your punter, Kai Kroger, and your backup kicker in Mitch Jeter uh, that came in as uh, uh, kind of in August as they counted towards 2021 class, but they have experience. Uh, and then Jalen Brooks came in in the transfer portal. So, and, and he's a receiver that's going to be in the mix. So, you know, you kind of look at this group, and it's it's not only a group that has promise across the board. Uh, it's a large group, and it's also a group where every one of them got to redshirt last year because of COVID. Um, so, I, I think whenever you're trying to kind of build something, it, it's 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 a luxury, you know, because many times when you're trying to build, you're not able to redshirt because you got those guys got to go play. Um, so, and a lot of these guys did, you know, most of these guys did play last year, but they got the um, they got the redshirt. So, you know, moving forward, you, you kind of people that worried about the 2021 class maybe not being as highly ranked. That I think I read something where oh that'll catch up to the program in a few years. Well, it really won't because essentially your freshman class is this 2020 and 2021 group. And most of the 2021 group, you got a ton ton of transfers that are kind of evenly distributed throughout the roster. So a small freshman class really is not going to hurt you moving forward. Uh, It's not going to catch up with you. Uh, And, you know, like I said, there's a ton of transfers uh, in this class, eight from the portal, uh, and then I think there's there's three junior college guys, so that's eleven guys that are transferring in. Um, 
and then uh, you know your your freshmen, uh, ten freshmen. So there's more transfers than there are freshmen, and yeah, so I think that's a positive thing, you know. So you have a large group of guys uh, when you add the ten into the twenty twenty group. So I think it's what 30, 34, 33 guys. They're going to be rolling through, and they'll all depart at different times. Obviously, some of them, you know, your Jordan Birches of the world, I think will have a chance to go pro, and Marshawn Lloyd, and some of those guys. But uh, so, so I, th- I think you kind of got to look. You got to back up sometimes and look at recruiting and and roster management and sort of the big picture, and. You know, that that is something to hang your hat on, I think, if you're Shane Beamer, uh, is that you do have a big, talented group of guys uh, that all got to redshirt that have stayed intact. I mean, I know Muschamp signed them, but, you know, Beamer's had to keep them. <laughs> and Micaiah Scott was out the door before, you know, Beamer even got there. I mean, he was gone. He had been gone for a while. Uh, and the others have stayed. And so I think that's good when you're talking about the core of your program and moving forward. Uh, I know nobody wants to hear about the Gamecocks being young next year. Uh, They seem to be perpetually young. But if you look at some of the better players and the more talented guys, a lot of them are going to come from the 2020 class uh, along with some of these transfers. So we'll see what happens. But Luke Doty is definitely part of that 2020 class. Uh, and I think, too, I think, look, here's the bottom line. You have to be realistic when it comes to South Carolina and SEC football and, you know, you got to play Clemson every year. You know, this coming year, if you can get to six and six and back to a bowl after after winning a total of six games the last two years, uh, I think you're cooking with grease at that point. Now, does that mean the 2022 recruiting class is going to be in the top 10? No. I think it's going to be right around, you know, 20 to 25, which will be a good group to come in and, again, add to the young core that you have um, because you're going to get everybody back the next year. Um, and I think that season can lay groundwork. I mean, you think about the groundwork laying situations uh, over the years uh, – uh, I think that seven and six team in 2009, uh, when Coach Spurrier was here, you know, that was Garcia's first full year starting. Uh, they didn't have Marcus Lattimore yet at running back. Uh, Alshon Jeffrey was a freshman and came into his own. Stefan Gilmore was a true freshman. That group that year had some good moments. You know, they, they beat a top five Ole Miss team at home 16 to 10 on a Thursday night. I think that's the first time Sandstorm really became popular. Uh, and then beat ACC Atlantic Division champion Clemson at the end of the year. And it had some downtime, down points too. Like the Papa John's dot com bowl, <laughs> losing to UConn. You know, I, I don't know. I, that was one of those days that I kind of just shook my head and said, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe it's just going to never happen <laughs> um, over there on the frozen tundra. But then the next year they go and they win the SEC East. And. I think that some of the lessons they learned the previous year as a team helped them, you know, and then Marcus comes in and, and plays pretty well. And then Clowney comes in the next year uh, along with some other good players and, and it got rolling. So I, I think that this coming season for South Carolina, a, a, a bright scenario would be, you know, a, a team that 
does take its lumps at times, which will happen, uh, but also shows some promise, gets to a bowl. Hopefully, if it's the pop, uh, the, the Birmingham Bowl, they don't lose it to a, you know, a, what was a Big East team at the time. Uh, but you know, get back to the, get back to the postseason. You know, and it, it's it's you know th- this program, and and technically they were supposed to go to a bowl last year and it got canceled. So I mean, te- I don't know how they're gonna count that in the record books, but for all intents and purposes this has been two straight years without a postseason berth. And and that had not happened at South Carolina since 0203 Holtz's third and four, or I'm sorry, Holtz's fourth and fifth year. It was the Corey Jenkins year. And then the 63, 17 year, they went five and seven back to back. Holtz got them back to the bowl, bowl eligibility uh, in 04. They were going to be going, I think probably to Shreveport and then, you know, the fight happened or whatever, so it was three straight. But, I mean, so that, that's a long time. That That's a period of 15, 16 years where this program has not been out of the postseason for, for that long. And so, you know, you, you can really go one of two ways here if you want to get right down to it. Uh, you can get back up and, and start being the South Carolina that people are accustomed to, um, you know, going to bowls, contending in the East, that kind of thing. Uh, or you can, um, you know, maybe go the way of Tennessee, which you, you look at Tennessee since 09, which was Kiffin's only year there. We'll, we'll go back to 08. So from 08 to 2020, Tennessee's had one, uh, two, three, four, five, winning seasons in what, what's that, 13 years? Five winning seasons in 13 years. Uh, They've been to – now, they've been to more bowls because they had a losing season under Derek Dooley. So, one, two, three, four, five – wait a minute. One, two, three, four, five – six bowls. Six bowls in 13 years, you know, five winning seasons. And and that's – that's tennis. That's the mighty Tennessee Vols who, you know, in 1998 won the national championship and they won multiple SEC titles and all that. So uh, you this this thing could go that way if Shane Beamer doesn't work out and there's perpetual change, uh, which happens at some SEC schools. You, you could you could definitely see uh, something like that happen, and uh, that would be unfortunate. But um, <laughs> uh, th- that that's the direction. I mean, it's kind of a crossroads. It could go that way um, or it can go back to being South Carolina and you can build back to where, you know, you're, you're up there with Florida and Georgia in the East uh, every single season competing like, like the Gamecocks were uh, during the Spurrier era. And, and, and I think that it could, it could definitely go that direction. I, I think and, and part of that is because, there is a good young core of players on campus. There is more talent on campus than people think. Um, I've seen some panicky kind of post after the scrimmage the other day about year zero. This is not a year zero situation. Year zero situations are situations where you have so many holes across the board. Your chances of, of victory are just slim um, unless your freshmen come in and light it up. Now, well, my champ was in a year zero situation his first year. Um, 
limited. They were limited across the board. I mean, D-line, linebacker, DB, wide receiver, you name it. Uh, thankfully, that first recruiting class patched some holes, and, and Jake Bentley was able to take over quarterback, and, and Brian Edwards had a good freshman year. Debo Samuel got healthy. Uh, and Hayden Hurst started playing well at tight end because that was his first year at tight end. I mean, you, you basically looked at it and it was like, you know, there's no tight end, so we have to move Hurst over. There's no wide receivers at all. So they played Casey Crosby a lot in a receiver-type position, uh, especially with Debo Hurt. Debo gets better. So Debo and Edwards are kind of a nice one-two punch along with Hurst and Crosby. Uh and then running back left a lot to be desired. You had to start AJ Turner. David Williams really wasn't you know, the guy that he ended up being in Arkansas and getting drafted. Um, so you had to go with A.J. Turner, who played hard and well, who was very productive, but was not ideal at times because the offensive line, which did have players coming back, was not very good. Uh, and then Rico Dowdle has to come in as a true freshman. I mean, you look at that team and that roster, I mean, they really had no business winning six. I mean, really no business at all. But they did, and they got there. Um, and that was a that well, that's a year zero type of situation. <laughs> this is not. This is and and I want to remind everybody too. Yes, Carolina went two and eight last year, and that's an ugly, ugly record. But reminder, it's an all SEC schedule. I mean, if Carolina had played, you know, East Carolina, and uh, I don't know who else they were supposed to play, uh, who they were supposed to open with last season. Um, it was not somebody very good. Uh, if they'd have played all those teams, you know, that, that weren't – oh, it was Coastal Carolina. Now, okay, let me back up on that. <laughs> there w- there probably would have been a scenario where Coastal could have come in and up- pulled the upset. That, that may have caused a change to happen right away because that was the opener. But chances are – I mean, you know, last year was just so weird. I mean – Carolina comes out of the gate, played Tennessee pretty doggone well. I mean, do you really think Coastal Carolina comes in and beats them? It probably would have been close. Uh, but but this team really, you know, two conference wins, blah, 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 you know, probably five and seven, four and eight, not really two and eight, you know. Um, so they're really not, you know, when you count the, the, the buy games and stuff like that, you know, the gimme games. You know, you're really not looking to go from two to six, uh, which sounds, you know, that's tripling the win total um, because in a normal non-COVID year, you'd have probably won four or five. Now, I don't know that Muschamp would have still been at South Carolina with that record. Um, But that's kind of – that's kind of the situation. So, you know, the first thing is last year's team was not as far off as everybody thinks. Uh, I know the end, it got ugly, uh, but if you think about it, uh, think about who lined up on defense against Kentucky and Georgia. I mean, these are guys that they're going to be better this year for it, but these are guys that were not ready to play. Uh, they were patching holes, man. <laughs> you know, uh, once those guys opted out on that side of the ball and things like that. So, you know, people are back. This is a different Carolina team that will take the field this coming year. And again, I'm not I'm not sitting here proclaiming the Gamecocks are going to be back and, you know, make your reservations for Orlando and the Citrus Bowl or, 
you know, whatever, or the Gator Bowl or whatever. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there's enough there to where, you know, if things go their way, they stay healthy. Uh, you know, the schedule is very, very much so backloaded uh, this, this year. I mean, you really, you look at it and, you know, six of the first seven teams, Carolina will either be slight underdogs, slight favorites, or it'll be a toss up. Uh, in most of them. Now, not Eastern Illinois, probably not East Carolina, probably not Troy, but, you know, the SEC games, it's, you know, it's Vanderbilt, it's at Tennessee, it's it's Kentucky, uh, you know, and then, then you still have Missouri on the road uh, at the end of the year, and you have Florida, you know, coming into Columbia, which the Gamecocks have, you know, lost to the Gators the last three years, but they played them pretty well you know, had their chances, certainly. So, yeah, I mean, you look at the schedule and you're like, hmm, you know, th- this could work out uh, a little bit better than people think, certainly better than the national media thinks uh, moving forward. Brad Crawford from uh, 24-7 Sports had a hot take uh, about the Gamecocks. He wrote that um, they could have two 1,000-yard rushers. Now, I'm skeptical of that just simply because of how offenses are these days and how this offense is going to be. They're going to be, try to be balanced and throw the ball. I, I do expect they're going to run it and try to establish the run. They'd be dumb not to. But I think if Marshawn Lloyd and Kevin Harris both get to 1,000 yards rushing, South Carolina is going to win a lot of games. <laughs> uh, because that's – you know, you think about how difficult that is to do. I mean, Kevin Harris is the first 1,000-yard rusher at South Carolina since Mike Davis – um, and that's a very that's a very difficult uh, feat to accomplish to have two in the Southeastern Conference. Now, uh, there's a caveat to this, and I'll, I'll say this: um, I uh, I think that when you look at last year, there weren't a lot of good defenses, right, uh, in the league. I, I wouldn't call them good defenses. Um, and so you, you sort of look at it and you're like, well, if that trend continues and the SEC is a points fest like the Big 12, like Oklahoma, it's nothing for them to have 2,000-yard rushers. Uh, then maybe the Gamecocks end up doing it. Um, and I'll go back to, you know, Georgia in 2017, this team played for the national title, uh, the Bulldogs, and, and Sony Michelle and Nick Chubb both went over 1,000 yards. Uh, and then they got they got the carries to do it. Heck, DeAndre Swift had 618. They were a very run-heavy team. Uh, and then Jake Fromm was kind of a pretty good true freshman game manager type of guy. Uh, and then it worked for them because Georgia ended up beating Oklahoma and, and playing for the national championship, winning the SEC in Kirby Smart's second year. Um, and so it's teams like that that get 2,000-yard rushers. I And I just – I'm not sure, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, uh, I think that's a very generous and, and red thinks so too, uh, a very generous uh, prediction there on the part of Brad. Uh, but Hey, we all hope that that's correct. A correct prediction, because like I said, the Gamecocks are going to win a lot of football games. If, if that happened or more than more than people expect uh, in, in my opinion. So we'll see kind of what happens there, but the rest of the national media, uh, as far as that goes, I think it's going to be trendy for people to, and then the ESP and FPI, which I, I've never been a fan of, 
Uh, I know they love to hype it. I know it's great reading material. Uh, I look through it and, you know, part of their formula includes first year coaches who coordinated at different schools. And so they have plus or minus on offense or defense. And then it's like, uh, recruiting rankings are involved, and I'm like, yeah, well, you know, that's ten, they got Tennessee 48th, Carolina 68th, Vandy behind them as far as the bottom teams in the SEC. Mississippi State's eighth for whatever reason. Um, yeah, it's not to put a lot of stock in it, but I, I think it's going to be trendy for people to pick the Gamecocks seventh behind Vandy uh, just because, you know, uh, a lot of people are really high on Clark Lee. Heck, heck, I am too. I'm, I'm high on that hire. Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes it gets trendy. I, I, it's, it's a lot of times it's trendy for, for people to think Vanderbilt will top a South Carolina or Kentucky or, or whoever, uh, Missouri. Um, and I remember two instances, both times the, and the Gamecocks opened with Vandy in Nashville. Oh, four, Jay Cutler was playing for Vandy and, some buddies of mine and I, we actually, I was living outside of Atlanta at the time and some buddies of mine came in town and we drove through the night to Nashville, uh, had a nice tailgate. It was a noon kick, 11 a.m. kickoff Nashville time. Uh, and everybody was talking, Commodores are going to beat Carolina. That was Lou Holtz's last team that uh, had come off 63-17. And Carolina crushed them 31-6. Like they were nothing. <laughs> the second time was, and I remember this very clearly, uh, Kyle Shermer was the quarterback at Vandy. Derek Mason, they were getting a lot of offseason hype. It was Will Muschamp's first team at South Carolina that, that I was just talking about. And somehow, some way, that team found a way to rally and beat the Commodores 13-10. to 10. Elliot Fry with a long field goal at the end. First game of the Muschamp era, as we all remember. And – um you know, so uh, that seems to be popular for, for the SEC media to, to – to, well, let's get behind Vandy or maybe they'll be surprising or something. But I don't know. I do know the team they're going to try to hype this offseason appears to be the Missouri Tigers. So I, I don't know, you know. And, look, I, I'll be honest. What Missouri did last year was impressive in my opinion. I thought that would not be a team that would win a bunch of games under Eli Drinkwitz the first year. And they've got everybody back. Um, and so that's a, that's going to be a trendy pick. But as I've told you many, many times, the trendy pick in the sec East, you know, the, the non Florida Georgia teams, uh, they tend to fall on their face. See Tennessee last year uh, for that. I think you can look at some Kentucky teams that have fallen short. Uh, Missouri two years ago with Kelly Bryant. That was a 500 team that caused their coach to get fired. So, you know, I don't – and Carolina in 2018, you know, seven and six after everybody said they'd be second. So, look, it's probably a good thing if the Gamecocks have sort of lower expectations heading into this year. Uh, and, and, and and I think I think that's good for just about any um, – you know, SEC East team, uh, considering the track record. All right, so there's that. All right, basketball, not much to report there. Frank Martin's going to meet with the media tomorrow. There's a big announcement, partnership with Major League Soccer and the University of South Carolina coming down the pike today. So they kind of cleared off all media for everybody else. 
So Frank Martin's tomorrow. I think some football players are tomorrow and then some football coaches. I think Kimberly and Mike Peterson will be. And that, it'll be interesting to hear from Mike Peterson about the defensive line and sort of who's playing where and, and some things like that. Um, Cause you know, he has the defensive ends and the outside backers, the edge guys. And so, you know, kind of your Jordan Birches and uh, Jordan Strong's and uh, JJ Anikbares and Aaron Sterling's of the world are all with him, Gilbert Edmond. And so it'll be interesting to see kind of how all that happens. But uh, basketball, probably some recruiting news coming down the pipe later today. Stay tuned for the bigspur.com. I don't want to give anything away there, but uh, I think every time the game guys get a player, <laughs> Uh, you know, things look a little better, I guess, you know, because you sort of know uh, who's going to be on the team next year. Uh, like I said yesterday, the roster is probably not going to be finalized until the summer. But, uh, you know, we'll see what happens there. Baseball last night, Gamecocks win 9 nothing over Charleston Southern. Pretty easy game. And uh, I was reading some reaction on, on social media and uh, from the players. And, you know, they were saying the the crowd at Founders Park, as limited as it is, was pretty much rocking and rolling. So congratulations, Gamecock Nation. You know, I think getting behind this team is probably a good thing. And my understanding is they're about to, you know, expand capacity for the baseball games here uh, in the very near future. So that, that'll help. And hopefully, hopefully there'll be some pretty big crowds by the time you know, regional time rolls around if the Gamecocks host uh, and all that big series this weekend at LSU. LSU started out one and eight. They're three and nine now in the conference. Took two or three from Kentucky last weekend. That was much needed on their part. So they're starting to heat up. And then talking to some people that cover SEC baseball, you know, that's not going to be an easy series for the Gamecocks. And that would, uh, you know, you always, if you go to Baton Rouge in any sport, you want to kind of catch LSU uh, when they're not playing as well. <laughs> and uh, I was just thinking today, if you think about football and how that game turned out, and, and then you you think about basketball too, that was an important time because, you know, the Gamecocks went down there, Bruce Shingler coached the team where Frank Martin had COVID. But the Gamecocks played them pretty well. I mean, it was – the uh, Gamecocks had a big lead, a double-digit lead, not a huge lead. Uh, then it went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. LSU took over and won by five at the end. But, you know, Carolina wins that basketball game and goes to 2-0 and in the league at that point. And, of course, then there was another COVID stoppage. But things, you know, you never know. One game maybe sends you one direction or another. <laughs> I'm not saying I, – I, I'll say this. It, it, would have, it wouldn't have been just like they'd have gone 7-14 and 14 instead of 6-15, and 15, uh, I think, had they won that one. Uh, and, and then here we go. You know, just like football, this LSU baseball team has been down. Carolina has a golden opportunity uh, sitting at 8-4 and four in the league to stay hot uh, before some, you know, really tough games start to happen. Arkansas is coming in, uh, Mississippi, Mississippi State. But – you know, you, you just kind of sit there and you're always kind of wondering, you know, if if LSU catches fire and you go down there and get swept, then all of a sudden you're eight and seven. And it's just uh, 
it'd be par for the course for this season. Um, but and and, and I'll, I'll segue onto that. Somebody asked on the message board yesterday, uh, "What does South Carolina need to be good in sports?" And I, I said consistency. And of course, you had some sarcastic answers. Well, they are consistently bad, and then they're not. Um, you're not consistently bad if you can go on the road and beat Georgia in football, okay, or beat Auburn in football. Any of the big, you know, big seven schools in the SEC outside of Tennessee, who's obviously struggled, you know, you, you beat those teams, it's not like you're void of talent, okay, or void of any chance of victory at all. Uh, same with basketball. You, you know, you don't play Alabama, this year's Alabama team, fourth quarter, I'm sorry, second half, late second half game where you had chances to win. Uh, you, you don't go to LSU and almost beat them, uh, that type of thing. Um, and, and that's over the course of a season. Uh, I think in general, you know, baseball needs to get back to being consistent as far as, you know, season to season. You know, Ray Tanner, and it's hard. It's hard. I mean, you can ask anybody that – it's around college baseball. Yes, Kevin O'Sullivan at Florida right now, preseason number one team. I think they're six and six in the league, uh, including getting swept in Columbia. But uh, it's hard to be consistent year after year, especially in the SEC. But that's one thing Ray Tanner did. Uh, there was never, you know, from about from 2000 on, you know, they were usually in the super regionals and never were not in a regional. Uh, 2015 under Holbrook is when that streak got snapped. And then, you know, you had 2017 where there was no postseason. 2019, there's no – all of a sudden it's three out of five years. And, you know, the years in between were two super regional trips. But, you know, I think everybody would like to – the program to get back to where, like, okay, at the very least, even in the down years, they're in a regional. And like I said yesterday, you know, Carolina baseball, the great thing about it was during the Tanner era – was that you knew, you knew that team when the final out of the season happened. You you, you felt like almost all the time, with few exceptions, uh, I would say 2000 when they lost to Lafayette at home and then the, the regional at East Carolina that they lost, I think the year before they, put, they, they won the national championship, were maybe the two years where you went, man, you know. But you knew that team was going to battle till its final out. I mean, and, and there were times – uh, during that stretch where, you know, Carolina would go up to Virginia and win a regional or down to Georgia Tech and win a regional. Um, and, and, you know, they weren't the higher seed, but they would just had more determination. And, and they were consistent that lasted a decade and a half. I mean, that's a long time from the, you know, from the Tanner, early Tanner years at the Sarge all the way through Founders Park opening. And, I think I think baseball that consistency, you know, when when you're there one year and not there one year, and you're good one year, bad the next, it's bad. Basketball, uh, and basketball had been pretty consistent in the three the three years after the Final Four. There hadn't been that much difference between the three. Um, not good enough, but I've always said the next step for the basketball program to take is is to make the NCAA tournament. Uh, and, and go on a stretch year after year after year and to where, you know, they're making the big dance and, you know, that's going to help recruiting and interest and, and all that good stuff because you kind of count on it. Um, and in the SEC, that's that's been difficult for a lot of programs outside of Florida and Kentucky. But, you know, you, you get to the point, and, and I always use Frank Martin's tenure at Kansas State 
as an example, you know, four NCAA tournaments in five years, one in IT, uh, one Elite Eight run, a big deep run, and then the rest were, I think, second round. Maybe he made the Sweet 16 one year. Uh, but always won a game. Yeah, that was consistency. And, and that's kind of what everybody thought, you know, Frank Martin could bring the team. You bring that, the kind of consistency you had to Kansas State and South Carolina. I don't think anybody's, you know, talking any different. And, and Frank Martin is a good enough NCAA tournament coach to where you make it every year, you've got a chance to make some noise every year just because of the style of play. I mean, that's the that's the upside to having him as the coach. I mean, I, I and, and I'll admit this as far as, you know, Frank coming back and all that, you know, I, and, I, and I said, look, it's probably time for a change on both ends. You know, it's been a while, you know, everybody's sick of each other or whatever. But I could never, I could never wrap my head around this. Bring a new coach in. Who's going to, who's going to be the guy that, you know, gets Carolina deep in the tournament again? And, and that's hard. Uh, and, and there's really not a coach out there, not named Frank Martin, that, that I'd sit there and say, you know, hey, yeah, th- this guy's a really good tournament coach. He can get them there. You know, as far as guys Carolina could get, I mean, you, you just don't know. And maybe, maybe Bob Ritchie and Pat Kelsey or whoever are good tournament coaches, and they're just at mid majors, and we don't know. But uh, I really think, uh, you know, I really think if you're just looking at that category, you know, you're not going to get much better than Frank Martin. The issue obviously has been getting there, <laughs> and so we'll see. Uh, if he can get back, you know, that that's the whole thing. But I, I think you look at his track record in the tournament and he's got a really, really good record and rarely goes out in the first round. It's a tough matchup for people because they're not used to it. Uh, and so they got, he does have that still going for him. Can't take that away from him. You know, uh, they're, they're, it's, it's, it would have been better. Obviously if, if he was looking at four straight one and nuns in the tournament, you know, first round exits and maybe that record wasn't so good. Uh, I don't think anybody would be worried about uh, – they'd be grumbled. There, there would be grumbles about well, when are you going to win another NCAA tournament game. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think we'd be talking about whether or not Frank Martin should stay had he done that. But, you know, so but at the same time, the, 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 that, that NCAA tournament record's still there. But I, I say that a bit in jest, but not really. I mean, not really. Frank is a good tournament coach. Uh, I'll circle back and say this, though. That, that's what that program needs. Football uh, was sort of a model of consistency, if you think about it. You know, from, you know, Spurrier would kind of anywhere from like seven to 11 wins most most years. They were bowl eligible every single year except his last year, which was a half year for him. Um, Went to a bowl every year except 07 that he coached the full time, and that was a six and six team. That it was kind of a situation where they didn't have enough bowl slots that season, still eligible. Um, you know, you, you could kind of count on that, and, and you could count on the Gamecocks, uh, you know, not always having pretty football games. There were some nasty blowout losses during that time, but you also felt like you had a you had a chance every time you teed it up, man. I was at the 56 to six loss to Florida in the swamp in 08 and 08 was probably his worst team. And man, we went in there thinking, you know, Carolina's going to give them a game, you know, because two years before when they won the national championship, Carolina was a missed extra point away from winning or going to overtime. And, 
Spurrier was dicing them up. I mean, it was <laughs> it was one of those things where from the start you sort of knew that, and Carolina's got to get back to that. I mean, you know, Will Muschamp's tenure was was very inconsistent in the, in the sense that every time you got a little momentum going, the rug got pulled out from under you, and a lot of times uh, it was against teams that this program's used to beating. I mean, you know, you, you go and you know lose to Kentucky. At home in 07, in seventeen, I mean that was after a great two and zero start, a big win over an NC State team that had a bunch of talent, a uh, big win on the road at Missouri thirty one thirteen to get the cup. You come back home, you're sick of losing to Kentucky. You know Kentucky's been poor, pretty average against two cupcakes. Uh, get off to a great start and then they beat you. I mean that's just uh, that's tough. That that is a tough tough deal. Um, you know, 2017 turned around, uh, beat, uh, the the Louisiana tech game was a scary game, but they won, you know, beat Tennessee on the road, beat Florida, won some really close games, uh, got all the way to Clemson. And then you just weren't competitive. I mean, uh, you know, and that was probably Dabo Sweeney's worst team during this run. That was the Kelly Bryant team. I uh, go to 2018, all the offseason hype. Georgia pff, comes in and blows you out. Turn it around, playing really, really well. Um, go down to the swamp, have them on the ropes, lose. You know, there's signs of hope after, uh, I guess, the, the offensive performance at Clemson. Um, people are kind of hopeful again. You know, the, then there's the Akron game, and then – you go and get shut out. You know, Carolina sells all its tickets to the Belk Bowl. Shut out by Virginia. Chance for redemption the next year. Lose to North Carolina. Blow a lead. Uh, moving forward, you go beat – finally, get up off the mat. Go beat Georgia. Beat Kentucky finally. Uh, then Florida comes to town and once again rallies past you. And uh, and then, you know, everybody's still hanging in there. Florida's a top-10 team. And you go to Knoxville, again, against a team that couldn't cross the 50 before you, they played you, and you give up 41 and a 41-21 loss. And then it just went downhill from there. And, and so consistency, I mean, that, that that's the thing is that, you know, you, you, Carolina, you know, used to usually beat the teams they were supposed to beat. You could count on that, and you can't anymore across the board. And so that, that was – kind of a segue there after talking about some things, you know, that, that I, I, I think that's the key is consistency. And it's not, you know, necessarily that they're bad because I, I think that there are times when Carolina gets up off the mat, plays pretty well. And you're like, wow. I mean, you know, think about the basketball team, not this past year that just completed, but the, you know, the bubble or the was NIT team probably shouldn't call them a bubble team because they were going to have, they were going to have to get to at least probably Sunday in the SEC tournament to make it. But, you know, you, you go on the road, beat Clemson. That's always important at their place by double digits. Then you go beat Virginia at their place by double digits. But you come home and lose to Stetson. <laughs> I mean, costly, costly loss. Uh, you know, in addition to the Boston U loss you had earlier in the year, that just kind of, you know, torpedoed the non-conference and, 
you know, so, so that kind of thing, that, that kind of thing's costly. And so heading into Baton Rouge in baseball this weekend, you kind of hope that, you know, Carolina plays good ball. You know, they, they don't get swept, you know, LSU could very well win the series, but uh, you hope if you're Carolina, you can pull another one out on the road, two games to one or whatever, then get back for the gauntlet, uh, which features some several home series and things like that. So, Carolina baseball this weekend at LSU. Uh, we'll get into more details about that later. Don't forget uh, the mailbag inside the Gamecocks at gmail.com. That's inside the Gamecocks at gmail.com or tweet to at the Big Spur Pod. Follow us on Instagram inside the Gamecocks. Follow at the Big Spur Pod on Twitter. Don't forget about the JC and Morgan College Football Podcast. We had a great interview with Brad Nessler for our last episode. It was outstanding. Uh, and also, uh, I'll be on JB and Goldwater later today, and you can stream that live, Twitter, YouTube, wherever. If you miss it, you can pick them up with their podcast episodes that are on iTunes, Apple Pods, whatever you want to call it. And so with that, I will move to the mailbag. And the first one comes in and uh, has Bullhead. Bullhead says, if you could only have five college football helmets for your sports den, what would they be? For me personally, I love Carolina's black matte helmet, FSU's helmet, Notre Dame's gold helmet. All solid helmets, man. And, and I, I had to write this down because it would kind of be a mix of teams that I like and teams that uh, I like their helmets. So <laughs> I would go the Carolina white with the block C from the Spurrier era just because – that helmet is synonymous with two of the better runs, you know, in, in pro three, actually three of the four. You, you think about Carolina football and you think, well, when were the, when were the runs, you know, when were, when were the, when was the program trending up and getting some national exposure and all that. And I think you got to say, uh, you know, the, uh, first of all, Jim Carlin, George Rogers, when George Rogers won it and, that was a bigger block C on that helmet and all that, but it was the white helmet. Uh, the Holtz era, you know, that's the years two and three, those were white helmet years. Uh, and, and then the Spurrier era, uh, which also featured white helmets for the entirety of the, uh, the deal. Uh, Holtz had black helmets in 04. Um, and then the Joe Morrison era where there were garnet helmets with the circle or whatever. Uh, and so three of the four – or white helmet. So I, I would I would go with my Carolina white there. I mean, I do like the black matte helmet, and I I think they could do more with the helmets. To be honest, if and I don't know what Shane. My, my guess is Shane Beamer dials back these. Let's put on a new uniform every weekend, and you know, pretend like we're Oregon. I wouldn't have a problem with that. And I thought I, I don't really blame Will Muschamp for that at all. I blame Under Armour and and whoever's deciding these things. In terms of the apparel, uh, I, I think they could have been a lot more creative with it. If you're going to be Oregon, and, and look, Under Armour does have precedent. I mean, look at Mar Maryland's uniforms are kind of like an Oregon deal. You know, they change week to week, but they're creative. Now, look, it's uh, with Carolina, it wasn't. It was just like, well, here's your garnet black and white, and just mix and match them every week. And sometimes you look like Texas Tech out there, and it just, it just. To me, it didn't make a whole lot of sense, you know. So hopefully Beamer does something different with the unit. And I'm not even somebody that cares a great deal 
uh, about unis. I do have my favorites, but, uh, you know, so that's a little aside there. Uh, so I'd have the Carolina white, I have TCU cause I've, I've got a lot of respect for the Horn frogs and Gary Patterson. Um, probably their, their purple helmet, you know, with the TCU across the side. I like LSU's helmets a lot. Uh, Southern cow, uh, cause I like I like their helmets and, and their tradition and all that. And then probably Michigan. I'm not a big Michigan guy, but to me, that's one of the best helmets in college football, the Michigan helmets. Um, I'll let you in on a secret. It's probably going to piss some of you off, but, uh, you know, Hey, that's, uh, that's, that, that's, uh, I bring info to the table, right? Uh, Clemson's helmets, very popular among recruits. When, when you go out, when I used to interview recruits, they would always say Clemson's uniform and helmet was very, very popular to them. Um, so, yeah, as if there wasn't 10 million other things that, you know, Carolina people think they need to catch Clemson on, you know, the helmets have to be one of them. But if you kind of take back and and think about it, you know, it's, it's you know, there's just the tiger paw there. It's, it's kind of a, you know, unique deal. But um, I'm, all, I'm not going to talk about Clemson's helmets anymore, but that's uh, – that's the deal there. Uh, but anyway, Bullheaded, thank you for that. And then we have one in the inbox from Hudson. He said, what's up, JC? Sorry, it's been a while since I've emailed in. Anyway, my question today is about Ray Tanner. And contrary to what you usually hear, I like him as an AD and think he's done well. My question for you is, what do you think it would take to get people to stop calling for his job? In my opinion, football and baseball winning consistently could fix a lot of problems. Thanks again for all your hard work. Always enjoy the pod and catching up on TBS. Um, yeah, I think I think this baseball season is pretty big because, you know, he's on baseball coach number two. Uh, you know, people, people want to, like, keep score retroactively, and, and, and nobody – you know, no, nobody was getting that job except Chad Holbrook. Had Eric Hyman stayed, Eric Hyman was instrumental in bringing Holbrook to South Carolina. They were both UNC grads. Uh, if you think Eric Hyman would have conducted a national search for a baseball coach and not simply promoted Holbrook had something happened to Tanner, I've got a, uh, I got some swamp land in Arizona to sell you pretty cheap. <laughs> I mean, that's just how things go when, when you have success. Now, I think there's a – in any look at North Carolina basketball and Hubert Davis, I, now I think there's a, an argument to be made, is that the right call? You know, keeping it in the family, is that the right call? And you can use North Carolina basketball as, as an example there too. I mean, is – you know, <laughs> uh, was Bill Guthridge the savior? I mean, did, did he keep the program going after Dean Smith left, Matt Doherty? You know, I know. No, no, no. They had to go through the wilderness a bit before they got Roy to come back. Uh, Alabama football hiring Ray Perkins is the same way. Uh, Kept it in the family. And he wasn't on staff, but he was a former assistant. Uh, You know, keep it. Now, now then there's other, other examples where it's worked out. I mean, I don't, I personally don't think all these guys from the Pete Carroll Lane Kiffin coaching tree have worked for Southern Cal football. Uh, I think, you know, they've kind of kept it and clung to those years and, and and it's not worked out for them. Now, then there's other examples like Chip Kelly getting the Oregon job where they actually got better, you know. Um, and I'm not talking about when guys get fired. Like, 
you know, obviously Ed Orgeron won a national championship and was an internal promotion at LSU and Dabo Swinney and what he's done at Clemson was also an internal promotion. And Ryan Day at Ohio state was an internal promotion. Um, but you know, two of those three guys got fired, Miles and Bowden got fired. And then Urban Meyer left and, uh, you know, Ryan Day really hadn't been there that long. And, and if you, if you talk to people about Ryan Day before he got to Ohio state, even got on that staff, it was a matter of time before he was a head coach, you know? And so, you know, there is sort of a mixed bag out there. So back to Holbrook, you know, nobody's there. Nobody's going to make a different hire in, in that situation. I mean, that's just, that that's just ludicrous to think that would happen regardless of who the AD was. And, and not that you don't count it because you have to count it because it's a hire that didn't work out. Uh, but, I think he fired Holbrook at the first available chance. I think if there was some sort of favoritism or stubbornness or delay in action, uh, he would have gotten a six year. But, you know, you have your first non-NCAA tournament team in 15 years in 2015. It was bound to happen to Ray or somebody because that's baseball. I don't think you fire him then. I think some people, you know, looking back, if you'd have done it, it would look like a stroke of genius. But, you know, and then 2016, they go to the Super Regional. I don't think you fire a guy after a Super Regional. Uh, but then 2017, they didn't make it, and he's out. You know, you, Ray Tanner did not let the baseball program slip that far. I mean, it was uh, it, it, before he made a move. You know, I mean, hindsight, in hindsight, yeah, punt him after they don't make the NCAA tournament. But that would have been <laughs> that would have been a little ridiculous on the other end. You know, people blame Ray Tanner for Steve Spurrier staying maybe a year too long. That wasn't on him at all. You know, that and you don't you know you don't run Steve Spurrier off after a seven and six season when you beat Florida, Georgia, and Miami. Uh and then you were three blown leads on defense away from winning the East. You had a record-setting offense. Uh, and, and so the idea there probably isn't that you want to get rid of Steve Spurrier. It's that you want to tell him to go fix his daggum defense. Uh, and he tried, and he failed, <laughs> and, and he was out. Uh, it didn't last, you know. And, and, look, I don't know that had Coach Spurrier coached it out and been three and nine that – that he's got the chance to stay, to be honest, because I, there were a lot of people that felt like it was time around the university. So, and no, you know, Ray Tanner didn't beg him to stay. You know, Will Muschamp, uh, I do think that there was a solid case to be made uh, in 2019, because in year four, when, when you're an unpopular hire and you're in year four and you're supposed to have your best team and it bottoms out, like that, I mean, with inexcusable, unexplainable losses, yeah, you're good enough to beat Georgia on the road, but you can't beat App State at home. You know, you're good enough to give Florida a game, but you can't beat North a rebuilding North Carolina team with a true freshman quarterback in a season opener. Um, and that's when you had your quarterback. Yeah, there was there was a good um, 
a, a, a good reason, I think, to make a change then. And he didn't. And if, if I were going to be critical of anything he's done, you know, I, I, as far as hiring and firing, it would probably be that. But I also spent the first 15 minutes of this podcast explaining how it was a godsend for Shane Beamer to inherit the 2020 recruiting class. Uh, that'll be the foundation for the program moving forward. So, you know, it is was a two and eight record during a pandemic year worth, you know, a, that recruiting class. That's the question you have to ask. Um, because it ultimately holding on to him ultimately did not set the new coach behind because Beamer has kept that class intact, you know, usually, and look, there um, obviously were some transfers out of the secondary and guys going pro and stuff like that, but off defense, but it really wasn't as bad as it could have been. Uh, you know, you could have seen Jordan Birch and Luke Doty and, and the talk of him, all these guys with promise get the heck out quickly. Because they're at positions where anybody would take them. You know, you don't think Georgia would take Jordan Birch tomorrow. So, you know, you look at it, and look, I got you. Got to give Mike Peterson some credit for keeping some of these guys in too, because a lot of these players have been on the record about Mike P uh, during the spring, and, and when they ask, "Well, did you ever consider leaving?" Oh, no, no, Mike Peterson's here, so I'm good. So you, you got to give Mike P credit. You got to give Beamer credit for keeping him around so you know so, so so that's the thing so yeah i, I and I, i'll i'll stand with anybody that says tanner held on to Muschamp too long and should have made a move after year four i think it was a risky move and uh results wise it blew up in his face but you know like i said there is a silver lining there depending on you know how some of these players turn out and, and i don't think uh, i don't think that's to be denied uh, you know, the Frank Martin situation, as we've documented, that wasn't necessarily on Ray Tanner. Uh, you know, that was kind of a collective university thing. Now, look, obviously, you're the athletic director. Frank Martin, you know, doesn't have a good team next year, and you end up having to make a change anyway. Hindsight's twenty twenty, so you can look at it. So, uh, you know, when I dig into to Tanner's personnel decisions, I I, I think the Muschamp hire was a gamble. Uh, I understand why he made it, though, because if you talk to any football people, uh, they were like, that's a sneaky good hire. We don't know why Muschamp failed at Florida, blah, blah, blah. And look, at when things started going south at South Carolina, it was a mystery, too. People talk about the culture and stuff. Well, you know, there were signs it was a great culture. And it wasn't. And so, you know, there was a lot that kind of, as you unpacked it, people realized that they were like, whoa. I mean, you know, and I think it's unfortunate because just like at Florida, he was 22 and nine through his first 31 games. You know, at South Carolina, you know, he did win more games than anybody else's first three years. Went to a bowl his first three years. But, you know, starting with that Florida game, that's when it all kind of came unraveled. So, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I, I think maybe there were more reasons why things did not work out at both schools than, you know, even like people like Jeremy Foley and Ray Tanner knew about. 
and people like myself and other coaches. And, and maybe there was just something about the style of coaching or, or the, the focus or, or whatever. Um, and one day we can dig into all that and uh, do a postmortem, but it was uh it's kind of a mystery sometimes because uh, I did think he was on, you know, he was, on, they were on an upward trajectory and then it just collapsed shockingly, shockingly, but yeah. So do, do I think, you know, what would what people want to win? People are under the impression. Sometimes I think that the AD is like the coach of all sports. Uh, they blame him. They, I've seen more people blame Ray Tanner after baseball losses this year than Mark Kingston which is crazy, but that's just the world we live in. People are looking for somebody to blame. Um, and, and so they blame at South Carolina, they blame the AD. Uh, and, 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 and so that, that's the first part winning in football and baseball would really help. Uh, I think too, some PR better PR. He needs PR help in my opinion, uh, a communications department that sort of can craft a better message uh, just like the spring game uh, ticket allotment thing, you know, 9,000 people, you know, you just send a press release out and said, well, we're keeping it to nine. Well, you know, you have to be aware that Clemson up the road is at 19 for their spring game and they're in the same state you are. So they they have to adhere to the same guidelines. Uh, and then it leaks out. Well, it's, it's the, it's the vaccination site and the parking. Well, you know, if, if you're if you're talking about capacity like it was this season for COVID, you're only talking about fifteen thousand. Um, to me, it seemed like they weren't going to open the upper deck because they had a fifteen thousand. You spread throughout the stadium. Uh, to me, it seemed like that's what. Well, we're just going to have lower bowl seating and, and have nine. Um, but they're working on that. But you know, a, a little bit clearer message right away. People wouldn't have agreed with it. And they'd have been pissed off because of the vaccination site. But if you just said that to begin with in your press release, you know, and, and they may have mentioned it, but they didn't say this is why we're only getting nine, nine and other schools can do 19. Uh, if they would said that, I think that would have helped. Um, some situations like with the Missouri AD and Dawn Staley, uh, you know, I think, and I and I think I don't think he handled that situation poorly. I think maybe a little bit better communication, you know, because you're you're communicating with your your people. You know that would have helped. And and those are little small things, though. I think that you know those are kind of tiny things. And and I think you know, like with this baseball heckler thing, I think Tanner's been all over it. He's had the exact right message. So you know, those are the things that I think would get people off Ray Tanner's back. I mean, I, I just don't know that there's – I don't know that his tenure is going to be what I would call lengthy from here on out. I mean, he's getting older, you know. Uh, I'm sure he's sick of the unwarranted criticism. Um, I'm sure he's sick of hearing about it every time a team loses uh, and all that. And so, I, I you know, I, I don't know that – you know, he's going to, you know, be the AD to see it through for Kingston and Beamer to do good things. And Kingston's doing good things this year. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. And it's kind of a shame because I think that there are other parts of his job he's been excellent at, uh, you know, namely 
spending the funds that football deserves to be spent. You know, there, you need funds to play football in the SEC and to compete against the teams you compete against. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see kind of what happens with that. But, yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's the bottom line on Ray Tanner. And, and again, I, I go back and I don't think he's a flawless athletic director. Obviously, you kind of are what you do. And, you know, the Muschamp hire didn't work out. So you have to – you have to that's, – that's a criticism. But a, a lot of ADs that a lot of you folks keep talking about a professional AD. I, I look across the country, and you know Jeff Long, who just got punted at Kansas, uh, was the chair, I think, of the either the NCAA tournament selection committee or the college football playoff, maybe both. Uh, this guy was considered; he was in Arkansas before. Go look at his hiring track record. Sometime, or look at Jeremy Foley's. I mean. It's it's not a slam dunk. I mean, Eric Hyman was not that great of a hire. I thank God in heaven every day that, that there was not a coaching search for football while he was the AD. Uh, you know, just because I I me and a lot of other people I talked didn't didn't have faith that it would end well. And of course, that was during the Darren Horn era and before he hired Frank Martin, which I think he redeemed himself for. He did hire Don Staley, which was an outstanding hire. Did 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 have the foresight to promote Gary Patterson at TCU. But you know, Ray hasn't had a chance to establish that track record yet. I mean, he's got a basketball coach that's going into his tenth year. He had a football coach that lasted eleven and a half. Uh, he was the baseball coach. He made a quick change in that sport. Don Staley's been here since before Ray was the AD. So, you know, I, I, and, and I think, you know, if Shane Beamer doesn't work out, I think then at that point you go, well, you know, hey, this is, you know, you got to make a stronger hire. Um, and, and I think a lot of other things play into it too, like, you know, Mike McGee's freakish ability to go attract name coaches uh, is part of it. You know, but Mike McGee is, was not as good of an athletic director as Ray Tanner, in my opinion, because uh, you know the uh, facilities and things like that. Now, I have had some information of late that maybe those facility situations weren't all Mike McGee's fault. But uh, looking back, you kind of are what you do, and and I, and I think. You know, Tanner, as far as the things AD do, ADs do, has done more. But, like I said, at the end of the day, uh, you know, winning and losing defines a lot. You, you know, in 2012, you didn't hear a word about Ray Tanner being the AD. You know, you never heard it. You know, Carolina was in the top five in football. You know, Holbrook's first year, they went back to a super regional. Frank Martin had just been hired in basketball was building Don Staley's program was starting to come of age. You didn't hear a word about it, not a word. So uh, anyway, good email Hudson. And thanks. And don't be a stranger with all that again, inside the Gamecocks at gmail.com or at the big spur pod tweet to me. All right. Got to go get ready for JB and Goldwater. This has been the inside the Gamecocks podcast, JC Sherbert signing off. Everyone have a good day.